0: Thank you, uh, thank you, Graham, for your welcome, and, and thank you, each of you, for inviting me back um, here to worship amongst this gathering of God's people as we worship God together. Let's now turn to God's word in Acts chapter 4. We're going to read from Acts 4.32 to chapter 5, verse 14. I was... Uh, unaware that you've been through Acts 1-3, to so hopefully this will follow on from, uh, from where you've been at. So Acts 4 and verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. who was also named Barnabas by the Apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the Apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the Apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much? She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. This is the word of the Lord. So here in Acts chapter 5 we have a pretty horrible story. And uh, yet I think this passage is really basic to what the church is all about. Uh, That might sound surprising because yes, it is a pretty horrible story, When you think about it, I mean, here are a man and a woman, they sell off their possessions. They then bring the money, some of it at least, and give it to the church to help the poor. They keep some of the money for themselves, but that's okay, it's their money. But for that they are struck down dead. And at the end of it all, in verse 11, we read, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And verse 13, yet none of the rest dared join them, which is hardly surprising. But it all seems a bit unfair, doesn't it? I mean, uh, what was so bad about this couple who were giving money to the church to help the poor? Uh, even if they did keep back a bit for themselves, what's so bad about that? OK, maybe they weren't completely honest, but uh, I, really, I mean, who of us here has always been completely honest? What if we all dropped dead because of that? So let's see if we can get a handle on this. Because I want you to think about what is happening here, because here for the first time there is trouble from inside the church. Up to now, the church has faced increasing trouble, but it's all come from outside the church. That trouble began, I'm glad you've been through Acts chapters 1 to 3, because that trouble began back there in chapter 3. It all began back there with that wonderful miracle of the healing of the lame man, and then that is a wonderful opportunity for Peter to preach the gospel. And in verse 12 of chapter 3, Peter preaches, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us, as though by our own power of godliness we had made this man walk? And then comes his sermon in verses 13 to 15, where he proclaims the Lord Jesus to them. And like all good sermons, there is application in verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. This then leads to trouble in chapter 4. In verse 1 of chapter 4, we read, As they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead so they're in the forefront here and they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening and so uh, so far as Peter's concerned though this is just another wonderful opportunity to be able to preach the gospel this time to the opposition in verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. So now he's addressing the opposition. He's not addressing those who, who, who are ready to listen. And uh, he goes on again to preach Jesus to them until we get to that well-known verse in verse 12 of chapter 4. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The result... They are now in big trouble. The rulers confer together in verse 17 so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Peter famously answers them in verse 19 whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so in verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. So that's how all the trouble began in the church, not that the early disciples were particularly deterred by this. What are they going to do? What would you do? What they did was they called a prayer meeting, What do they pray for? To be delivered from their trouble? No, not at all. They just pray for boldness to be able to go on preaching the gospel in the face of trouble. Down there in verse 31, it says, uh, sorry, in verse 29, it says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. We're not asking to be delivered from trouble. We just ask that you give us boldness to go on preaching the gospel in the face of trouble. And in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer in that way. So that's the picture we've got of the church at the end of chapter four. It's a church which is facing increasing trouble but it is facing that increasing trouble with faith and with boldness. And then, in chapter 5, for the first time, there's trouble within. Okay, we're realists. We know trouble comes from inside the church as well as outside. That's nothing new. Why was this trouble so bad? you go back to the picture we have of the church at the end of chapter 4 because yes it is a church which is facing trouble with faith and with boldness but it is also something else look at what's happening there in chapter 4 verse 32 now the multitude of those who believe were of one heart and one soul the multitude what is there something like 3,000 or more now were of one heart and one soul. It was uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, who once said the definition of true friendship is one soul in two bodies. Not two souls in one body, as in marriage, but one soul in two bodies. That, of course, is fundamental to marriage uh, as well. Marriage is the best friendship, I believe, best human friendship on earth. So certainly in marriage it should be... uh, one soul in two bodies. But it's basic to all friendship. And not least, friendship amongst Christians in the church, one soul in two bodies, or more bodies in this case. And here in the early church were the first Christians. They were just that. They were all of one heart and one soul. We live in a divisive world. We, I don't have to tell you that. We are surrounded by Disunity. But here we see the divisions that divide human beings are being reversed. In effect, the curse of the Tower of Babel is being reversed. You remember how back then in the Tower of Babel, men and women were united in their pride, they were united in their opposition to God, and to punish them, though actually it was as much an act of mercy as it was a punishment. I mean, you think about it, what hope would there be for the human race if at that time God had allowed us to continue united in exalting ourselves above God? And so as much as an act of mercy yet to punish them, it says the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. The Lord gave them all different languages, he scattered them abroad, that was the curse of Babel. That curse is already being reversed at Pentecost when we read that each man heard the gospel in his own language. And now in chapter 4 we see those speaking in the same language, in the same tongue, in a different way. The multitude of those who believed were all of one heart and one soul. They're all on the same page. They're all saying the same thing. Furthermore, they are expressing this in a very practical way in verse 32 of chapter 4. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Okay, you can understand that, can't you? I mean, you can hardly claim to be one heart and one soul. And then hang on jealously to your property when you see your brother in need, can you? Here are the details of what was going on, verse 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessed of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now, please understand, no one was under any obligation to do this, Everyone was free to dispose of their own property however they liked. Those who sold their possessions and shared the proceeds with those who were in need did so on an entirely voluntary basis. They did so willingly. And then we're given a specific example of someone who did this in verses 36 and 37. And Joseph who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of an encouragement, a Levite from the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there was a man in the church, we know him by the name of Barnabas, but that wasn't his real name, that was just a nickname. His real name was much more ordinary, it was Joseph or or Joseph perhaps. But what Jesus did here was typical of the man. Having land, he sold it and brought the, mo- <coughs> brought the money <coughs> and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here was someone who was generous to a fault. Even among so many other generous people, Barnabas, it would seem, shone more brightly than them all. And because of that, he was given this nickname, Barnabas, which means literally, as it says there, son of encouragement. Okay, so Hebrew, in this case Aramaic, is a bit short on adjectives. So one way you get to describe someone, if you can't think of an adjective to describe them, is to call them son of. And so, for example, if someone's very big, you might call them son of a mountain. Or if someone gets very angry, as at one stage James and John were getting very angry, you might call them sons of thunder, as Jesus did, James and John. Or if someone's always uh, sounding off and blowing their own trumpet, you might call him a son of Trump or something like that. Okay, you get the picture. Sorry about that. So son of encouragement means the one who is outstanding in encouraging others. Uh, we might call him Mr. Encouragement. So this is what the church is like at the end of Acts chapter 4. In the beginning, man fell... He was cast out of paradise and then man fell again at the Tower of Babel and they were scattered across the face of the earth and their language was confused. But in the book of Acts, we see all that beginning to be reversed. We see the curse of confused languages being reversed and each hearing the gospel in his own language. We see the disunity and the scattering of mankind being reversed and a multitude it says here being gathered into the church where they're all of one heart and one soul we see the sinfulness of eden and the self-centeredness of babel being swallowed up in the selflessness and the generosity of many in the church as epitomized by mr encouragement this is paradise being regained this is a whole new beginning God is reversing the effects of the fall and gradually restoring paradise. At least this is about as close to paradise as we're ever going to get on this earth, this side of heaven. Then in chapter 5, we get this discordant note. That discordant note comes in with three characters who haven't appeared in the book of Acts up until now. Chapter 5, verse 1 but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife. There's the first two, a man and a woman, a man and his wife, Ananias and Sapphira. And the third one who appears for the first time in the book of Acts is in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? And suddenly, I've got a sense I've been here before. Paradise, a man and a woman, a man and his wife, and Satan. I mean, that's how it all began. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's the way the Bible begins. And God saw everything that He'd made, and behold, it was all very good. That's what we call paradise. Everything is very good. Then into this paradise, God introduced a man and a woman, a man and his wife. And he looked at them, and they too were very good. But after only two very good chapters in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 begins with a but. That's the way the Hebrew reads, anyway. Genesis chapter 3 begins with the most significant but in the Bible thus far. Into paradise came another creature. But the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Into paradise came Satan. Now from the bits and pieces that we have scattered throughout the scriptures, we learn that Satan was once the most beautiful of all the creatures of God. He was carried away though with his own beauty. He was overcome by pride. And he had rebelled against God. And so God cast him out of paradise because of his pride. We know that because 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that when we are puffed up with pride, we fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Satan then entered paradise to destroy what God had made. He tempted the man and the woman. He tempted them with the sin he knew best, the sin of pride, He told them, go on, eat the forbidden fruit. God knows that in the day that you eat the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Think of it. You'll be like God. You'll be wise and great and beautiful, just like God. You'll be admired and looked up to by the host of heaven, just like God. We know what happened. The woman listened to Satan and disobeyed God. The man listened to Satan and disobeyed God. Paradise was lost. Pride led to their downfall and destroyed that first paradise. It was, of course, many sins. It was doubting the word of God. It was not believing God. It was believing the devil. It was covetousness, lusting after something that would satisfy the flesh. But behind it all was the sin of pride. Our first parents wanted to be like God. It was pride that lay at the root of all their other sins. Then what did they do? Well, they tried to cover up. I mean, why did you do it, Adam? How could you commit the ultimate sin and disobey God and as a result murder all of us who have come after you? They tried to run away and hide from God. It says the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They were trying to cover up their physical nakedness, but really in the end they were trying to cover up their sin. And then it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They destroyed the first paradise by their sin and then they tried to cover up, they tried to hide. The first paradise was lost, it was lost by the sin of pride, Satan's pride in rebelling against God and man's pride in wanting to be like God, in wanting to be looked up to and admired just like God. So God began again. The church is God's new beginning. It is God recovering paradise. No, not perfect, not yet, but one day it will be. And in the meantime, the church is made up of those of us who are being reformed in the image of God, reformed in the image of Christ. And that's why the picture we have of the church here in the first four chapters of Acts sounds so perfect. I mean, yeah, it's not perfect, perfect, but it's about as close to perfect as it ever will be on this earth. That into this paradise comes a but there always seems to be a but in paradise but a certain man named ananias with sapphira his wife a man and a woman as i say we get a nasty feeling about this we have this sense of deja vu and then in verse three satan satan who hated god and tried to destroy the first garden god planted isn't going to sit idly by while god while god plants a second the scene is set for a new disaster Ananias and Sapphira saw the other members of the church selling up their possessions, sharing the proceeds with those in need. They saw Joseph do this. I mean, Joseph, he's not even from Jerusalem. He's from out of town. He's from Cyprus. And yet there's Josie come lately. This outsider rocks up and gives to the poor and everyone's talking about him. They don't even call him Joseph anymore. They now all call him Mr. Encouragement. Now, we went to dinner the other night at someone's house, and there was George and Betty and the Newburys, and, and Mr. Encouragement was there. Everyone was talking about Barnabas. Everyone spoke well of Mr. Encouragement. Ananias and Sapphira would have liked it if people looked up to them that way. They would have liked it if people spoke well of them too. And they thought, what Barnabas has done. Isn't all that great? We could do that. Yes, we could do that. And then perhaps everyone would speak well of us too. So they sold a parcel of land and then they took the money they got for it. They put it together to take the apostles. Only when they actually got the money in their hot little hands, they suddenly thought and said, that's a lot of money, isn't it? The apostles will never know. The church won't know the difference. Let's keep a sizable portion for ourselves. This Ananias and Sapphira agreed to do. It's what we call conspiracy. They both agreed to do this together. Now, remember, no one made them sell up their land or give to the poor. They didn't have to sell their land. Having sold it, they didn't have to bring all or even any of the money to give to the poor. That was not a rule in the church. Each was free to do whatever they liked with their own possessions. We know that because Peter says there in Acts 5 and verse 4, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Ananias wasn't made to sell his land by the church. Having sold it, he wasn't made to give all or even any of the money away. The rest is history. Ananias came and brought the money to the apostles. He pretended that it was the full sum that he had retained for the, for the sale of the land. He really wanted to be thought of as someone great, just like Barnabas who was so looked up to by the rest of the church. But Peter knew. He challenged him, he exposed him and immediately Anas, Ananias fell down dead and was taken out and buried. Death in paradise. This was the first death we read of in the new paradise. Death in not because of opposition from outside the church, but death first came to paradise because of sin from within the church. Then after three hours, Sapphira comes looking for her husband. She's heard nothing about the fate of her husband. She just thinks, oh, he's been away. I've got a while. I'd better go and check what's going on. She comes to where the community of God's people is gathered together. She expects... They're all going to gather around. They'll start praising her. She expects that just for once the people won't be talking about Barnabas, but now they'll be talking about Ananias and Sapphira. She walks into the midst of these people. Suddenly everyone goes quiet, very quiet. They all turn to look at her in horror. There is this eerie silence. Silence. This is not what she was expecting. She doesn't understand what's going on. Peter says to her there in verse 8, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She says, yes, for so much. And she too drops down dead. What did they do? I mean, what were the sins of Ananias and Sapphira for which they were judged so severely? So, as in the Garden of Eden, there were many sins here. As in the Garden of Eden, this man and the woman were covetous. And as in the Garden of Eden, a second sin that is always present where there is covetousness is the sin of doubting God. I mean, why do we covet? Why do we hang on to what we possess? Well, because we doubt that God could provide for us if we let it go. As in the Garden of Eden, there was a third sin here, the sin of conspiracy just as the first husband and wife not only sinned each individually, but then they conspired together to cover up that sin. So this husband and wife in the new paradise of God conspired to cover up their sin. You'll notice down there in verse 9, Peter says, how is it that you have agreed together, or literally and in some translations, how is it that you have conspired together to test the spirit of God? And as in the Garden of Eden, there was the actual cover-up which meant further sins of lying and deceit. They lied to the church, they lied to the apostles, they lied to God. Verse 4, Peter says, you have not lied to men but to God. For this they were specifically struck down, that they lied to God. So there were many sins that Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of, covetousness and doubting God and conspiracy and lying. But the really intriguing question I find is this. Why? Why did they do it? Yes, they lied, but they didn't have to, did they? I mean, if they wanted to keep part of the price for themselves, they were free to do so. They could have come to the apostles with the money and they say, look, we sold our possession, but we really want to paint the kitchen and do up the kids' room, so we've kept some of the money, but the rest of it, please take it to help the poor. There was nothing wrong with that. They could have done that. But, and here is a very big but. But then they wouldn't have looked as good as Barnabas, would they? And there's the crunch. They wouldn't have looked as good as all those others in the church who'd been selling their lands and selling, selling their possessions and then bringing all the money to the apostles to be distributed to the poor. They wouldn't have looked as good as others and especially they wouldn't have looked as good as Barnabas this Josie come lately from out of town. And so, yes, there were many sins here, covetousness and doubting God and conspiracy and lying and deceit, but in the end, their real undoing was that they wanted to look as good as anyone else in the church. In the end, it was just the sin of pride. Pride destroyed the first paradise and pride almost destroyed the second I think one of the most common ways that we struggle with pride yes even in the church of God is when it comes to covering up who we really are what we really are even when it comes to serving others Matthew Henry says on this passage he says many are brought to gross lying by pride and by wanting the applause of men and this is especially so when it comes to doing good works let me repeat that Many are brought to gross lying by pride and by wanting the applause of men and this is especially so when it comes to doing good works. We don't have to pretend to be what we are not because I believe that this is the most common form of pride that we as Christians struggle with covering up who we really are, what we really are, what sins we, and weaknesses we really struggle with. I mean, all of us in the church are sinners. Yes, saves sinners, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, saves sinners who now endeavour to lead a holy life, but sinners nonetheless. We're not living in the first paradise of God where God saw everything that he made and behold, it was all very good. One day, yes, by the grace of God, one day we will live in a paradise like that those of you who have put your faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone but not yet but this new paradise we live in at the moment is made up of saved sinners we are, we are sinners who have been saved but just because we are sinners who have been saved we don't have to relate to one another as those who are perfect well almost no one says they're perfect do they but almost perfect we don't have to pretend. I don't have to pretend with you. You don't have to pretend with me. I, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't deserve the grace of God. I know I don't deserve his forgiveness. I know I don't deserve to, 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 to minister the word of God. I, I know I've broken all the commandments of God. I don't want to go on living like that. By the grace of God, I don't go on living like that. By the grace of God, you and I will grow in holiness But if I went to Christ as the rich young ruler went to Christ and said what must I do to inherit eternal life and if Jesus said to me as he did to the rich young ruler well you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother, you shall love your neighbours yourself and all the other commandments I would have to confess Master all these I have broken in one form or another at some time or other from my youth up. I'd have to cry out like David the psalmist Do not remember the sins of my youth, or of my latter years for that matter, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not worthy to serve God. I know I'm not worthy to serve you. That's all I am. That's all we all are. We're all only sinners who are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not saved by how good we are. We're not saved by the, because we project a good image. We're not saved because we're better than someone else. Adam and Eve tried that. They tried to pretend to be like God, but it was nothing more than the sin of pride. It was the sin that destroyed the first paradise. And Ananias and Sapphira tried it. They were so concerned about their image in the eyes of others in the church, they came near to destroying the new paradise of God. And it would have destroyed the new paradise, it would have destroyed the church before it had barely gotten off the ground, if it had gone unchecked. I mean, what if the whole church had ended up going down that path where our primary concern is that we look better than others or we project a good image to others, where we even begin to see our salvation in terms of the the image we project? It, It would have destroyed the church. And that's why this sin had to be dealt with so severely right at the very beginning. Had it not, it would have set the course of the church for the rest of history. The danger was that those in the church would have thrown over Barnabas's example and followed Ananias' and Sapphira. We don't have to pretend. Put away concerns about your image in the eyes of others. Stop worrying about what others think about you and instead embrace the truth that we are saved by Christ, by Christ alone. It is his sacrifice and his righteousness that brings us to God, not our image and not what others think of us. His sacrifice, his righteousness. In comparison to that, all else, as the Bible says, is rubbish. Let us pray. Mighty God we thank you so much that you have sent your son that we might be brought into your presence for surely this is love not that we loved you but that you loved us and sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins forgive us O God for when we have been more concerned about what others think of us than our relationship with you and help us, O oh Lord, to be open, to be honest before each other. We Think of how when you, O Christ, were on this earth, you were able to say, which of you convicts me of sin? I've always lived openly before you. We know that we so easily could be convicted of sin, but we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ and we pray that you would help us to live openly before one another in the Church of Christ and that we might indeed be of one heart and one soul, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.